Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 138. My name is Dr. David Sinoe. I am here in the Vomitorium, Vomitorium South, on a frosty January morning, and I'm here with my fabulous co-host, uh, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you this morning, Jeff? I'm doing I'm doing really well. I think I, as I was talking to you before we switched the button on, is that, you know, getting a little restless uh, towards the end of the Christmas vacation. A little I'm, antsy. A little antsy. Right. And, you know, the kids are kind of climbing the walls. And so sure. um, I think uh, I'm ready. And even if my kids wouldn't admit it, uh, they're ready to go back to school. They wouldn't uh, admit it. No. But <laughs> let's get let's get dad out the door. Yeah, exactly right. And let's get back to business. But he's driving everybody crazy. That's right. Right. Too much uh, leisure. Too much right? leisure. Yeah. I makes don't do, uh, don't makes do Jeff well a dull that. boy. Exactly. All right. Yep. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. I, uh, I'm completely recovered in health. Which, which is a great thing. Yep. I've got some intensive teaching uh, the next few weeks. Oh, you do? Yes. Uh, right. Teaching here in Grand Rapids at a seminary and then jetting off to a fabulous Southern California. Oh, you did tell me about that. To that... teach basically the same class <laughs> at another institution. Yes, but in much uh, balmier, sunnier weather. I That's imagine. right. That's the climbs like... will be good, Sounds I good, think. Man. So I'm, you know, going around collecting all my ter- materials. Um, Hammering out the lecture, searching for things. Yes. Uh, sometimes um, I search for something, you know, and uh, this is a setup for a bad joke. You <laughs> okay. can tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I search for something and I look and look and it it turns out that I can't find it, right? Yeah. You know what that's called, what, right? What, what is that Well, called? when you search for something and you, you know, it's it's kind of a fool's errand. Yeah. You don't, you don't know what I'm talking about? I don't know what you're talking it about. It involves waterfowl. Water, um, you're trying to get your ducks in a row? No, 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 no. It's what? in the search <laughs> involving something larger than a duck, another kind of waterfowl. It's a wild goose chase? Yes, yes. exactly. But I would say that um, for me, these are mostly like domestic goose chases. D- domestic goose chases. Exactly. <laughs> And there's the joke. So just local, yeah. local geese. Gotcha. It's not quite as bad as a wild goose right. chase. It's a, it's a domestic goose chase. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. So if we can just analyze that pedantically for a moment. Okay. Up until just a few weeks ago, my whole life I had assumed that the adjective wild there yeah. modifies chase. You know, now that you bring it up, that was my assumption yes. as well. So yeah. it's a goose chase. But it's a wild the, chase. The chase is wild. The chase is wild. Right. You're, you're chasing a goose and the chase is wild because who knows where it's going. Right. I've now come to the conclusion that wild modifies goose and goose modifies chase. Because if you're chasing a domestic goose, right. then no problem. That's right. <laughs> right but right. chasing a wild goose? Yeah. Yeah. This, right. I mean, it's a, it's a problem that English has with its adjectives. You're right. right. You know, just right across. Stack them up. Right across the street mm-hmm. um, uh, from where we are right now, there's a sign advertising a giant book sale. Yes. As you walk in, there's just one huge <laughs> book in there, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Giant book sale. Right. Except you Only one person can purchase it. You don't have this problem in Latin and Greek. You don't. No. <laughs> because of inflectional morphology, shall we say. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, you know, all my goose chases, I keep domestic. Yeah. And that... that uh, I, that sounds like a smart idea. It removes a lot of problems. Yep, yep. All right, so we have, uh, what are we doing today, Jeff? Oh, I'm really excited about today. We I are, am too. We are interviewing 
um, the great Caroline uh, Lawrence. Yes, the, the children's author, who yes. is one of these one of these wonderful people who is keeping the flame of Catholics. That's correct. Uh, oh, Catholics classics alive. <laughs> there you go. And um, and bringing uh, the ancient world to a popular audience. Yes, yeah. and she's going to be coming to us from jolly old England. That's right. Yeah, uh, through the wonders of Zoom. Yep. And uh, this uh, this woman is a fantastic authoress and has been so successful and has so graciously agreed to come on the program and tell us what it's like to write fiction for children. Yep. Tell us what, I'd really like to know this, tell us what it's like to be successful. Right, <laughs> exactly right. That's incredible. And she, uh, in terms of her, her, her academic pedigree, she's, I mean, she's, oh. a, she's got a legit classics pedigree. She's right? the real deal. She is the real deal. Absolutely. Yeah. So Caroline Lawrence, we're going to welcome her in just a few moments. But first, Jeff, yeah. we have a shout out. Can we you do. give us that? Yeah, this was, comes from um, a, Ford, a former student of, of mine. I don't, I don't, did you ever have? Yeah, one? I did. Not, okay. not for as many courses as yes. you. but Yeah, this uh, Katria Jade. Could you say that name again? Because that's that's an unusual and beautiful name, may I add. Katria Jade is okay. her name. Yes. And I remember her very well. She sat right in the front row of my intro Latin class mm -hmm. and really bright student and um, got stuck with me through um, at least kind of like two, two and a half, three years of Latin. Incredible. And uh, she was one of those students that just, it just clicked. She yeah. got it right away. Ate it up. Ate it up. She ended up coming to, on a, on a January J-term trip to Italy and just, uh, just, just devoured it. Excellent. Yep. And so she writes to us, and it was great, it was great to hear from her. She says, um, um, after graduating, she lived down in Alabama for about seven years and has recently come back to, to West Michigan. And while she was down there, she worked at a family-owned jewelry store, and kind of the idea was that it was just going to be something temporary and part-time, and she, she fell in love with it, um, with, with the job, with the people. Um, and now back in Michigan, she works in, uh, in local, uh, Granville, which is just a few miles mm -hmm. down the road from here, and she works at Ingalls Jewelry, a family-owned jewelry store. Shout out to Ingalls it. Jewelry Company. Yes, exactly. right. right. If they want to become a, a sponsor, sponsor, yeah, right. we could hawk diamonds. Right. So she, she loves it. Um, and this doesn't surprise me. She was always very much a people person um, and kind of working with people, different people every day. And she, but she writes this, my Latin knowledge actually did help me once a while back. I had a couple who wanted to do a Latin engraving on their wedding bands, but the inscription they chose was too long to fit. I helped adjust the wording to make it shorter without changing the meaning. Sweet. They didn't believe me until I translated and explained the grammar. Oh, I love that. It was a while ago and I can't remember the phrase, but I do remember the looks they gave me and my bosses too. It made me laugh. The catch, of course, is that there was no one there to check me, so let's hope I did it right. Yeah, well, Katria, first, I'm sure you did it just fine. And second, the inscription might be on the inside of the band, hidden next to the person's finger. Yeah. Right? So no one's ever going to know. Right, right, right. Exactly. But I'm sure you did it right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, 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 so today she says she loves um, spending time with her dogs, writing, um, reading. She also wrote to us another email that she has another friend. Um, that you graduated with, who was yeah. also um, a lover of the classics. Aaron Coster. Aaron Coster. Mm -hmm. And they are both, and this perhaps most importantly of all, they are both big fans of the podcast. Yes. You, th you say that's the most important thing? Uh, uh, that they love the podcast? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> right? Can I read a little bit of this? Sure. Because I like this part. Okay. Right. My love of the classics often has me rambling to my housemates about the universal nature of storytelling. And on one memorable occasion, giving a, uh-oh, a slightly tipsy explanation of dactylic hexameter. I assume by that she means um, she was standing on one foot. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Iambic pentameter and oral tradition. I am not sure they were prepared for this. I was advertised as comes with its dogs rather than we'll start talking about scansion <laughs> after having one beer. <laughs> and then she ends with a really nice joke. Yes. You can take the girl out of academia, but not the academia out of the girl, maybe. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Was, uh, thank you, Katra, for listening. Thanks for being a great student, and uh, it's wonderful to hear from you. Yep. Yeah. Thank you so much for keeping the flame alive out there, even in the jewelry business. Indeed. Love yes. it. Yep. 
All right. Well, Jeff, I think that's it. And uh, let's welcome Caroline to the show. Uh, perhaps you all know her already, but uh, Caroline is a very successful author of a children's literature fiction um, based on the ancient world, uh, the the Roman Mysteries series. I have been reading those for a few days now, doing my homework, and they're absolutely fascinating. Jeff? Yeah, um, this is uh, it. Does Dave and I were just talking just before we um, we opened up the Zoom? Is that uh, one of the things that we we love about uh, people like you, Caroline, is that you're you're one of these people that is uh, keeping the flame alive and bringing the classical world to a new audience to a young audience and it's it's actually it's what we're we're striving to do on this podcast and and so i think one of the questions dave says i want to ask her is like uh is uh, uh caroline we love what you're doing we're trying to do the same thing but how are you successful in doing that <laughs> yeah uh, the reason i'm successful is pure dumb luck <laughs> ah Yes, Fortuna, uh, right, strikes us all. And also having the mindset of a of an eleven year old, I think. Mm. Mm. Um, and I fell in love with classics when I was, I think, about the age you guys did too, in my late teens. Okay, mm-hmm. I was about seventeen or eighteen, and I read um, a book by Mary Reynolds called "The Last of the Wine." Oh, and yeah. If yeah, you yeah. haven't read it, it's it's brilliant, and it's a fi- historical fiction set in the time of Socrates and Plato and Xenophon, but it's got two fictional main characters. And um, I think it was written in the late 50s or early 60s. But okay. anyway, I read it when I was about 18, and it just blew my mind. And that I was on my gap year, and the same month I read the Iliad in translation, E.V. Hmm. Rude, the, the mm-hmm. uh, English. Yes, yep. I know that one. Yep. And I thought something written 800 B.C. cannot sound this modern. Yeah. I've got to sign up for Greek and see if it really is. So when I went to UC Berkeley and started at UC Berkeley after my gap year, uh, I signed up for ancient Greek just on a whim. Mm. And we had this great teacher called W. Gerson Rabinowitz, who would Mm. sit in a cloud of Marlboro smoke. That tells you how long ago that was. (laughs) Ask us to parse Greek verbs, which Uh. as you know, analyzing them dramatically. And we were terrified, but we loved it. Yeah. Um, and and then they, I loved it. And I, I think one of the reasons I love ancient languages and Greek, starting with ancient Greek, is it's like a code or a puzzle. It's, hmm. And yes. when you decode it, the reward is that you are in the head of someone who lived thousands of years ago, and you're in that world. Yes. And you can see it and hear it and smell it. Mm. And it's just amazing. It's it's mind blowing. And so they said, well, if you like ancient Greek, you have to do Latin. We call it classics. And I right. Said, <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's so exactly what it, happened to me. Yeah, it's pretty, and I'd always loved the Greek myths because my parents were quite, you know, arty and intellectual. And they had Greek myth books and art books lying around. So sure. So yeah. I I never looked back really, and. Um, uh, I've off and on, I've loved classics ever since I ended up coming to England on a Marshall scholarship to study at Cambridge, uh, at Newnham College, Cambridge. And when I got here to England, oh my gosh, everybody was so far ahead of me as far as the languages, because mm. they've been studying since, some of them have been studying since they were seven or eight. Right, sure. Right. Right. Um, at places so, like Eton, right? And uh, Harrow well, yeah, and things like that. Yeah, places like Eton and Harrow and Winchester and all right. these um choir schools and stuff so um so i felt like the dumb one (laughs) (laughs) but um 
and in fact, I think I realized that then academia was not for me. Huh. Um, I took a break to get married, have a kid, uh, started to help out as a teacher at his school, just volunteering and did little art classes. And they said, oh, you're great. You know, you can teach. You know, it was an independent school. I didn't need a teaching degree. What would you like to teach? Teach anything. And I said, well, I'd love to teach a taster of Latin to the kids. Ah. And these are kids 9, 10, and 11. So we used to do what's called the Cambridge Latin course, which is this. Sure, yep. It was that orange, you know, Caecilius Estin Horco and everything. Yeah, sure. Um, and I had so much fun. And cut a long story short, I thought I loved teaching, but it was exhausting. I thought, I've got to actually write books that will transport kids to the ancient mm-hmm. world, get them interested the way that Mary Reynolds sparked my interest. So yes. I just happened to time it at the time when Harry Potter books were taking off. <laughs> so this was the, was the late 90s, uh, t- 2001 around actually, then? Actually, I got the idea in 1999 at the end okay. of the summer holiday. And my, I'd gone home to visit my sister in California. And I was telling her, I want, I love movies and I wanted to write a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, why do you write books for kids? You know, you're mm-hmm. teach kids. And I suddenly had this light bulb moment. Nancy Drew. Yes. In ancient Rome. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and it was this mashup. And I thought, if I can do a girl, a kid girl detective, because Harry's a boy and he's the hero, I'm going to have a girl, right. girl hero. She solves mysteries in the ancient world. And in doing that, I can slide in all the knowledge and, right. and transport my readers to that world. And the dumb luck was that I just caught that wave when all kids were now reading um, because of um, J.K. Rowling. And they wanted book series. And so uh, that was the dumb luck, really. Yeah. So um, that's a wonderful intro to what I think is going to be a fantastic discussion Um I'm looking at the inside cover of Thieves of Ostia, which is the one that I just finished this morning. And now I'm almost done with uh, Queen of the Silver Arrow. And I have lined up also um, with Murders in Rome, I think, and also The Assassin of Rome. But on the inside cover of the Thieves of Ostia, there's this very nice review from The Independent. And it says, Packed with Adventure Effortlessly Deployed with Detail Culled from Pliny and Juvenal enjoyable entertainment. So I read that. And then as I'm reading through the story, um, I was looking for those little hints of things from Pliny and Juvenile, and they were really well, um, they were really well placed. They never overshadowed the story, but I was trying to think as I read it, if I were a kid again, which I'd like to be, um, but with current life experience and knowledge, uh, how would this, how would this feel as I read these details? And uh, I, I came to the conclusion that it would feel very natural. It would hmm. be kind of engrossing. So can you say a little bit more about um, how you chose the specific details and uh, what shaped um, some of that background, which is, is so plausible? Absolutely. Well, if you like the mention of Pliny, we meet him in the second book. The second ah. book. He actually becomes their mentor and he gives okay. a talisman, you know, the hero's journey kind of. Right. Um, storytelling template. Well, when my sister said a book for kids set in ancient Rome, I immediately thought Pompeii. What's right. the mm-hmm. most exciting thing that ever mm-hmm. happened in ancient right. Rome? And so immediately I've got, I don't just have a year. I have, I mean, it's been slightly bunked now, but I had a date and a month, you know, the 24th right. of August, AD mm-hmm. 79. So that plunks me firmly in a in a time slot so i'm researching who was the emperor then titus you know just become emperor mm-hmm. 
Vespasian had died, and then his evil younger brother is going to become emperor soon. Yeah. So that's what put me in the late first century AD. The quote, the lovely quote from the independence says effortlessly deployed. And you know, whenever it says effortlessly, there's a <laughs> heck of a lot of work behind. <laughs> right. And they got yeah. one thing wrong. It's not juvenile. My inspiration is Marshall. Oh, oh, yeah. And he's the one who writes really rude verses. In fact, yes. It's, it's, if he was around today, he'd be writing the equivalent of Sex in the City, you know? Right. But he has right. all these little tweet-length epigrams. Yeah, that's right. King of the, the king of the two-liner, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah king of the two-liner, which is yeah. just my wavelength, you know? That's my <laughs> it's, it's two lines. But apart from his rude stuff, which is very rude, he is, I think, the best, maybe, no, he's the best at describing the sensory world of ancient Rome, the taste, mm. the touch, the smells, the gifts, his book of the gifts you give at the Saturnalia. Yeah. Mm. Um, has each little gifts, you know, the cheap gifts, the cheap mattress, the feather mattress, the cheapest kind of cloak, the most expensive kind of cloak, what it's made of, what it smells like, all this stuff. And so I just love Marshall. And he actually makes a cameo later in the books too. I mean, he was a horrible person. He was a an anti-Semitic misogynist, you know, right. that mm. I do love his stuff. Right. Or at least he presents himself as one. It's so hard to know whether these, uh, same as Catullus, whether they really believed what they were saying. I, I just, I don't know. It's it's That's delivered right. for so much effect to a to an audience. Um, but yeah, some of the things he says are are outrageous. <laughs> I have a question. So um, you can correct me if I get some of these details wrong. But um, so when you went to Cambridge, you um, you you change your track towards uh, archaeology. Is that correct? <laughs> Essentially, archaeology. What that means is art and looking at pictures of, of Greek vases and statues. Yeah. Got you. And I think I read in another interview that um, you ended up on one dig and you decided you hated it and uh, yes. decided. <laughs> so where was that? Oh, that was fascinating. Uh, I was uh, I was so ungrateful. I was invited on a dig um, by a great English archaeologist who's passed on named Graham Webster. And it was in mm. a place called Roxeter, which is up near Wales. I mean, okay. I'm still not clear on English geography. <laughs> it's up there. And uh, there was a Roman fort up there. And so I went up and, you know, you're kneeling in the dirt, you know, in the rain and the wind and stuff. Right. And, um, and communal, communal showers, communal bunks, you know, and, uh, that was a revelation. Um, <laughs> it's like being an undergrad again, but it with... was, but it was even more so. But I had one moment, which was great. Um, I was digging and I found a roof tile, you know, the way they laid them out to dry mm. and it had the paw print of a dog on it. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. Uh, um, but I actually, I've seen so many tiles in the 40 years since then with animal prints. I'm sure they did that on purpose, actually. Huh. It's to keep away evil. It's to distract you. Oh, spirit. sure. You get an animal that run across your... Yeah, exactly. Apotropaic, my favorite word. But I, I, realized, too. I realized at that moment that I was going to be an armchair classicist. Yeah. Uh, not get out gotcha. there. With, and then I read somewhere someone went on a dig in Israel, which at first sounded great. But when they started about talking about bugs in the food, I thought, nope. <laughs> No <laughs> you didn't listen to um, our rant about insectivores a few weeks ago, perhaps, <laughs> but uh, maybe someday if you'd like to. So, yeah, Carol, I, go ahead. More, uh, so yeah. um, where I wanted to go with that. So I mean, despite kind of your experience with kind of, you know, hands on 
archaeology in writing a story where you're setting it in Pompeii. I'm wondering if um, time that you spent perhaps at Pompeii and your kind of experience with kind of the archaeological finds and and just um, so you talked about how you know Marshall as a literary influence, but how about like the material influences on your writing and how you put together a story? Oh, if you yes, could talk a, a bit about that, yeah. Material culture is paramount, and although I don't do archaeology, I am so grateful for all my archaeologist friends who do do it. Yeah. Get mm-hmm. out there and dig in the wet and the cold and the rain and the right and the heat and the with dust. a toothbrush uh, and one. Tooth- squ- on one square meter for two years. And so, although I don't dig, I go and I visit these places and I walk around them. And I, one of the reasons I set my my series in Ostia is it's it's one of the most magical places I've ever been. It's got a real sense of magic about it. If you've ever Agreed. been, read. Yes, yes, we, we have a couple of times yeah. together, even. Mm-hmm. So fantastic! Yes. And, fantastic. And course, in some ways, in some ways, I like it even better than than Pompeii in terms got, of. Something about it, and it maybe yes. it's not as busy that it's yeah it's more deserted. But those beautiful uh, umbrella pines and the mm-hmm. snow yes, and the, the light as it filters in. And so I go to sites and I try to get a feel for the geography, the atmosphere, the feel of the sun, what birds would be around, what wildflowers. Mm-hmm. I will eat what maybe they eat in the cheaper restaurants stuff they mm-hmm. for thousands of years. I will go to museums. I just hang around museums all the time and look at the artifacts. And I don't go to the bling. I don't go to the gold and stuff. I go to the <laughs> little oil lamps, you know, yeah. which almost like postcards from the past that show you what they're obsessed with. And especially, I am so blessed. I live in London. I can be at the British Museum in half an hour. Oh, yeah. that's phenomenal. Yeah. The, the vase is there. I've had to Russell take Square. My- Exactly. I've had to teach myself to say vase, vase in England instead of vase. <laughs> you got to fit the in. Vase, so. The vases are just works of art. And yeah. even, even the crude, clumsy ones um, are, again, a glimpse into the past. And then, so I use all those things. I go to museums. I talk to experts. And London is, it's got not just museums, but it is Roman. London is right. mm-hmm. by the Romans. And they recently, a few years ago, five years ago, they opened... A temple to Mithras in the basement of Bloomberg's um, London headquarters. Hmm, seriously. And <laughs> you can go down underground because you always go down to go back in time. Right. Uh, you go about 30 feet underground and they've got the foundations of a temple to Mithras. And when you're down there, they suddenly turn out all the lights. Uh. And when they bring the lights up, they fill the room with steam and they hmm. use lights to replicate the walls and the columns of the temple. And oh you hear people speaking in Latin, and it's an immersive experience. So, London, now, do they then drench you in bull's blood at that time? <laughs> that's or? a mis- That's 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 a, a fallacy. They didn't. Oh, that's the magna mater that they might have done that with. Okay, they didn't even sacrifice a bull. If you sacrifice a bull in a temple that small, in fact, they're always underground with no lights. Sure. Right. Um, it would just go berserk. You know. You mm. So they didn't sacrifice a bull, but they do have this iconic statue of Mithras slaying the bull. bull. Yeah, now, you, again, you'd have a, you'd have a communal meal down there, right? You'd have a you would you yes. would exactly. And I I know the archaeologist who or who designed this um, 
And she said they were half thinking of having the smell of chicken piped in because they found lots of chicken bones. <laughs> That's but then fantastic. She thought, no, no, no. Wait, people will think there's a Colonel Sanders or a yeah, I was gonna say, nearby. There's a lot of KFCs in London, if I remember. So, so this temple that they found there, the, there was a, the, a sculpture with a bull sling motif that was all there intact. Um, well, they found or... it. They found they were digging foundations in 1954. London was still in a bomb site because of the Blitz. There were still buildings, especially in the city of London, which is the Roman part, yeah. the center of London, the financial center. Um, and they were digging foundations of a new building. And on the last day of digging, they found this beautiful marble head of Mithras. Mm-hmm. And they knew, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, the people who wanted to build their building thought, uh-oh, there's a Roman ruin here. So they took time out, dug it, and found the remains of the temple. And they had found other bits that showed there was a temple of Mithras nearby, and they put it all together. Wow. This was a temple of Mithras. It it only survived about 200 years from about, I think from about 200 AD to about 400 AD. But of course, as you know, the, the cult of Mithras only allowed men in. Yes. And it was vying with Christianity who allowed anybody in. Right, right. Mithraism <laughs> <laughs> yeah. did not survive. And a few, indeed, a few um, centuries later, a church was built on top of that site. Mm, yeah, mm. As, as, as often as often happens. As often is. Bef- yeah. have, you, have you incorporated uh, the mysteries of Mithras into any of your stories? I'm so glad you asked. I've just written a book called The Time Travel Diaries. Oh, where okay. I have a 12-year-old London schoolboy um, go back in time using the Mithraeum as a portal. Because ah. my theory was, if you wanted to go back in time to Roman London, and you put, say, a portal, you know, on street level, and step mm-hmm. feet, you'd fall 30 feet to get to sure. Roman London. So you have to go down. And my theory was, you have to find a place that's not just longitudinally and latitudinally um, empty, but altitudinally empty, the same space now as it was then, because you don't want to step into a wall or a column, do you? Right, right. Or fall right. 40 feet. So they put the portal in the nave of the Mithraeum, hmm. of the modern Mithraeum, which is exactly where the ancient was, where, ancient one was, and they send him back by he steps, has to step through. And because I like to make life hard for my, um, my heroes, you have to go naked if you go back in time. <laughs> <laughs> it I, makes I, sense. I stole yeah. that idea from Terminator, of course. I yeah, that. yeah. Right. All right, right. Very nice. Yeah. Before we get too far along, I want to spend a lot of time um, on the, the books themselves. And we have so many questions about um, what kind of fiction you like and what authors you have met and so forth and whom you admire uh, in you know your guild. But before getting to that, um, I just want to ask, what was it like to be at Cambridge? And for a little bit of background, you know, a lot of our listeners, and I think probably ourselves, there's a good deal of prestige attached to the British universities, Oxford and Cambridge. And uh, we both have uh, visited some of those places. They're so overwhelmingly impressive. So I'm I'm wondering, what's an insider's look like uh, from the time that you were there? Well, I remember when I was at, at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, I had an English professor named J.K. Anderson, who specialized in Greek armor. And he said, you should go to Cambridge rather than Oxford because it's much prettier and it's smaller, <laughs> he said. Um, so um, I, I managed, as I said, by the skin of my teeth to get a scholarship to Cambridge. And it's, it is beautiful. And 
you know, there are buildings there that are twice as old as America. If you right, right. 70s, 76. Um, but it is, it is that kind of unreal world of mm. academia, you know. Um, and I think Oxford is too. You're just always amazed by the architecture, by mm-hmm. the even song, and you hear these choirs of superb singers, young boys and older people, and just singing ancient hymns and psalms. And right. It's beautiful. But, um, but I love London. Mm. I'm in love with London. Okay. And uh, when I left Cambridge and came to London eventually, I, I was on like a year high, a year mm-hmm. long high. And I still am. We live by, we live right by the river. If I turn oh. my, my, there's oh, the Oh, there's the Thames right there. Oh my goodness. Right there, yep. Now, are you on a houseboat or how does that? No, we're in a, an apartment. We're in an okay. apartment in, <laughs> um, in a place called Battersea or Wandsworth. Oh, yeah. London, yeah. But again, you know, London's got great public transport. So it was yes. great being at Cambridge. It's great to visit Oxford. I love those places. I go back often and see, you know, friends. And there are often classics conferences there. Yes. But um, I love London. Uh, still love it. And you can get to anywhere easily from here. And there's, mm-hmm. again, there's so much history, especially Roman history, right? Right. Have you visited the Wallace collection? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Vincenzo Fapa um uh, fresco there of the young Cicero reading. Uh, oh, is, I don't know that one. I better oh, go. Oh, it's it's that. fabulous. It used to I hang over the. It used to hang. I'm told over the the desk of the bank in Milan. The Medici um, commissioned it, and now it's there at the Wallace Collection. So you're uh, when, a big Cicero I, fan, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah, not everyone shares that. <laughs> 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 he he uh he died too soon to appear in any of your books so far as I know. But. Yeah, he's uh I think yeah, I don't think I even mentioned Cicero. I have one book where I talk a lot about rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um but I think um yeah, I don't talk, I don't even talk much about Cicero in that one. Um but I have a fun book where I go about the gestures of the orator and everything. Oh yes. I saw some of those diagrams. Yeah, yeah, that and that that was fun. Yeah, I work in a lot of people, but no, um, and of course, I do work in Antony and Cleopatra into one of my books, but it turns out it's a fancy dress party that they're shipwrecked in Alexandria, and they're all dressed up like Antony and Cleopatra. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's 1999, and you get this idea. Um, why don't I write a Nancy Drew-style mystery with a female heroine to uh, be kind of a natural counterpart to the Harry Potter craze? A balance. Let's a say. balance, yes. And then um, how did it develop from there? If you can tell us some of that story, please. Yeah. Um, essentially, because I've been wanting to be a screenwriter, I have been studying um, Hollywood plot structure, especially the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Like that. And I'd been listening to tapes by a brilliant um, script guru called John Truby. I want to give him a shout out. He changed my life. And uh, I worked through trying to write a screenplay and wrote a couple of screenplays, um, which were no good. But I taught myself story structure in those mm-hmm. times. Mm. And then my sister suggested this idea, uh, gave me the idea. And I immediately had my structure because if you're going to, I'm really interested in the setting, the world. I'm not even so interested in the character, the plot, 
but kids are interested in character. Yes. They come up with really great characters and a great plot. And I had this Hollywood story structure, the hero's journey where the hero lives in an ordinary world. They dream their call to more. They get a call to adventure. They refuse the call. But then the mentor comes and says, yes, you have to go. Gives them a talisman. (laughs) They cross the threshold, go to the world of adventure, have adventures, training, montage. The visit to death, they grasp the elixir, they get the prize, and they return home again. Wow, you got this down cold. You can read this in your sleep. I've also written a book called How to Write a Great Story. (laughs) Put that on my Amazon list. (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. But then um, I was thinking these characters. I've got this girl, but I've got to have boys, too, because I can't Mm -hmm. just have a girl main character because I know boys will read the book. And so I thought, well, the girl can be like Nancy Drew, kind of bossy know-it-all who's putting her nose in where she can Mm -hmm. be. Know, bossy know-it-all, um, <laughs> impulsive and petrous. And then I was looking at some of my favorite films because I adore films, things like Star Wars, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Um, You're speaking Jeff's language now. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, this is yeah, great. yeah, yeah. Harry Potter, um, the Hunger Games. Well, ha- that hadn't come around yet, but these all fit. And you, I realized you often get a main character with about three sidekicks, three mm. helpers, a faithful sidekick, the funny one and the wild one. Yeah. And so, for example, um, in Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, I mean, yes. the real sidekick is Toto, but of, of the three she meets, she's closest to Scarecrow. Right. And you get the funny one, the Tin Man, who is equal to C-3PO in Star Wars. Yes. Right. And then you get the wild one, the cowardly lion, who at first you think they're an opponent, but then they turn out to be a helper. But because they're a little bit wild, they're all out of control and they're all right. And right. sometimes even betray you, like Chewbacca, who's a bit of a wild one. It's like um, the uh, the centaur, um, uh, Kiran. Yeah, centaur, right? The There's, centaurs so, yeah, are yeah. They present as wild, but um, they, they also can possess deep knowledge and will help you in the right circumstances, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, a few years later, of course, Rick Riordan just hit yes. pure gold by using the same structure and the right. same ideas. Yeah. Um, and people, you can't say it's stealing because it's so deep no. ingrained. It goes back to Homer. It goes back to Virgil. It goes sure. back to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, so, um, Flavia's my, she's the leader. Um, the funny one is her, her Jewish Christian next door neighbor, Jonathan. Right. The early generation of when Christianity was just beginning to take hold, mainly among a Jewish population. Right. And then you've got um, her faithful sidekick is a beautiful enslaved person from Nubia. And I made a conscious decision to give her dark skin, even though I tell kids when I go into schools that slaves could be any color in ancient Rome. Sure. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to give kind of hope to anyone who'd come from a background of mm-hmm. Um, she's and you gave her a very recognizable name, which I think was a wise as well to call her Nubia from her, yeah. you know, which actually place. isn't her real name. No, um, I didn't expect so. In a later but... book that her real name is Shep and Weppet, which is a ah. proper Nubian name. <laughs> and then Lupus is a little disabled. I knew I wanted a disabled character. And at first I thought I'd make him deaf, but then I realized that wouldn't be very exciting. They'd be shouting, Lupus, watch out! And he'd just be standing there. (laughs) So then I thought, oh, I'll make him mute. And a poem of Marshall, my my fave guy Marshall, Marshall says um, to someone, you cut out your slave's tongue. Mm -hmm. um, So they can't say what you did, but everyone knows what you did. Lucius or whatever his name is. Right. So I got the idea that my character Lupus 
would be mute and wouldn't be able to speak because someone had cut out his tongue. He's a compelling character in the story. I like him quite a bit. Uh, okay. People say to me, how could you do that? That's so violent. But kids love it. They're just yeah. Well, of course, you didn't do it, really. It's just a reflection of one of the realities of the time. And yet, so. I did do it because I'm the author. <laughs> yes. It, remi- it reminds me of you know, reading to my own boys the, the Lemony Snicket books, right? Which are upfront with their darkness, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. The, the, the first page, he says, if you're expecting a, a story with a happy ending, um, you better shut the book now. And so, I mean, I I love kids' books that that have kind of a a, a gritty realism to it because I mean, kids, yeah, like you said, kids love it, and they can also they can handle it. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge walking that tightrope, really, between showing things, giving them a hint of what it was like, but you yeah. can't go all the way there. That would be too much. Right, right, right. If we go back just to the the, the hero's journey. Uh, a minute with something I've I've long been fascinated with. And I want to ask you a question that my students, my myth students often ask me when we, when I talk about Campbell and I talk about Jung and um, they ask, they say, um, and when they start recognizing, they realize that in so many of the stories they love, they start recognizing this pattern. And they always ask us, well, why is it then if we keep telling the same story over and over again, why does it not get stale? Why does it continue to, to grip us? And I wonder if, you, if you've thought about that, not just using kind of the, the archetypal structure, but thinking about, well, why does, this, why does this keep working? Yes, absolutely. I've thought about it. One reason is I think, I think it's in our DNA. Mm-hmm. I think if you think God created man, I think God is the supreme storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I think he almost implanted it in us. But on a less spiritual realm, that's how we learn. Every day we have desires, don't we? And um, we want things. And usually we have to struggle to get them. And we don't like conflict in our real lives. But that's the way we learn is through conflict and through battles. Hmm. I think that hero's journey mirrors on a grand scale our everyday life. Mm -hmm. The little desires, the struggle, the knowledge, the revelation. Um, And so it's... It's part of how we live. Mm. It's also in a world where um, we've lost our instincts, a way we can tell each other around the campfire to be careful of going, what to be careful of and what to watch out for. It's a kind of right. way of yes. preparing us to go into the world. Right. That puts me in mind of two things. First of all, it, it raises the question, who are my sidekicks <laughs> <laughs> on, on my hero's journey? And Am I their sidekick? I, I sh- I'm sure I am. And then the second thing is, at the beginning of Thieves of Ostia, um, I was struck by how successfully you take us in Medias race. It's the second page, maybe the third page, and all of a sudden we are in the middle of the necropolis and there's danger and um, suspense. I thought that was really nicely done. Hmm. In fact, that opening, thank you very much, that opening is like, it's like the beginning of The Wizard of Oz where there's a little mini mystery at the beginning. Mm-hmm. He has to go on a mini hero's quest to right. get her back. And um, what I've done there is I'm introducing her as a detective and she goes on a little mini hero's journey where she crosses the threshold from the safety of her house into the necropolis, which is like the visit to death. Yes. And it's an opponent who is not an evil opponent, the magpie who stole the ring. Right. And she's got to overcome there she's got to overcome various little um, hurdles and her moment of revelation 
um, this is what John Truby taught me, that it's not about just getting the prize. It's about what you learn mm. when you go on the quest. And she does get the ring back, but what she realizes when she's up the tree and found her dad's ring in the magpie's nest is she realizes she's a good detective. Mm-hmm. This is what she's called to do. This is her calling in life. And then she discovers the earring, which is worth a lot of money, which she's going to sell and save this poor enslaved girl by buying her, not to have her as a slave, but as a companion and a friend. Right. And even by the third book, uh, she sets her free, you know. But um, so, so, yeah, I've got a mini hero's journey. And in yes. fact, what I realized is that each chapter, even each scene, hits these beats of the hero's journey. And what what I love, the hero's journey has up to 18 beats, but what I love about John Truby, my mentor, he talks about seven plot beats, which I have used over and over. And again, it's in this book, How to Write a Great Story. Mm-hmm. He says your hero always starts off with a problem. They then have a desire. They see something that will solve the problem. Three is the step that you often forget it's the opponent. Someone's going to clash with the hero as they go for their desire to solve the problem. And it doesn't have to be an evil opponent, but your brother or sister. And in fact, in most of our daily life, it's our intimates, our friends, our family. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, then the middle of the story is the plan. The hero comes up with a plan to defeat the opponent to get the desire to solve the problem. And that often involves the journey, the movement. Near the end of the story, you get step five, the battle. When the hero finally has the final conflict with the opponent. And this steps- this would be the scene, if I may interrupt, this would be the scene with the, I don't want to give it away, a spoiler, but the, the trident with the three dogs' yeah, well, heads. That's, that's, that's in the main story. But even oh, in this okay. first chapter, the battle with Flavia and the magpies, just when she's following him through the woods. Got it. She mm. doesn't even touch him. But if she gets to his nest, she wins the battle. If he keeps his nest a secret, he wins the battle. Mm. So then... She waits for him to fly away, climbs up, and she grasps, she gets the reward. But again, what she gets is six. Step six is the knowledge or the self-revelation. And in many films, this is John Truby is just so brilliant. He says the self-revelation is often in silence. Mm. And I've just been re-watching The Godfather. And Michael's moment, one of his, his big moment of self-revelation is when he's standing outside the hospital with the baker they're yeah. pretending they're the bodyguards because they realize his father's in the hospital wounded don don corleone wounded and the bad guys the the um the other families are about to make a hit michael's got to stand there and pretend he's he knows what's happening that he's got his right. hand um his moment is they drive away the baker takes out cigarettes and his hand is shaking and he's trying to light it michael takes his lighter and his hand is perfectly steady. Mm. And in silence, he looks and he realizes this is what he's called to do. Mm. He can do this, a revelation in silence. Mm. So Flavia realizes, doesn't tell anyone, she's a good detective. Yeah. And then the, ne- the next step, the final step of seven is the new level. Your hero either ends up on a higher level or a lower level, happy or sad ending. Lemony Snicket's made a living by ending on a lower level. Yes, yeah. Um, she realizes she's a good detective. She's got the ring, but then suddenly she hears this panting and looks down to see wild dogs, half wild dogs surrounding the tree. So she's got a new problem. So we start back with step one again, a new mm. problem. 
a new desire to get away from the wild dogs. Her opponent, who's her opponent? The dogs. What's her plan? She yells for help, etc. And then she meets Jonathan, who saves her. So these steps cycle over and over. And once you see them, it's such a powerful engine for driving mm. your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So um, you wrote the first book. You searched for uh, an agent, a publisher, or they searched for you. And then how did, I'm curious how things kind of took off from then, uh, from that point, because you've, you've shown us the book, How to Write a Great Story. You've talked about Truby. Um, in some sense, anybody who can read and write could do this, but not anybody can have this kind of success. It's kind of unusual. You already credited uh, the goddess Fortuna Stulta, right? Dumb luck. But... <laughs> But clearly, there's something else going on, right? Because not not everyone's ideas take off like this. So I'm curious about what were the next steps, and when did you when did you kind of sit back and think, "Wow, this is going really well. I'm I'm pleased with what I've been able to accomplish." You know, hubris. <laughs> I can stop. I've got a good idea. Right. I I, I remember thinking. When she, when my sister said that, and I thought Nancy drew an intro, I remember thinking, if I can pull this off, it'll be a hit. And um, and I have a great story. I love reading books on writing, and uh, I read somewhere Jeffrey Archer. Have you heard of him? I don't know that name. He's a very popular British author, and he's massively popular, and he just turns them out. And someone went up to him at a party once and they say, I could do what you do. And he said, well, then go ahead and do it. And the point is, yes, you, anyone can write. It's a right. craft, not an art. What it requires is one thing, self-discipline. you got to sit down and make yourself do it. And I often tell kids, you know, they say, give me a tip about writing. I say, train yourself to write. Make it a habit as regular as brushing your teeth um, to write every day and sit down and do it. And again, I was lucky because I started becoming a writer before social media. Yeah. <laughs> I shortened times, you know, um, attention spans. I don't right. think I could do it now. Um, so what I did after I got up, got the ideas, I wrote the whole first draft in the last two weeks of the summer holiday. I've never written a book that fast before or after. My husband had published a nonfiction book with someone who was an editor of cookery books and stuff. Hmm. And I sent it to her and she said, yeah, I don't usually do fiction. She said, when my husband said his wife had a book, but she said her heart sank. But then she read it and said, yeah, I can do something <laughs> with this. And so essentially I sent the whole first manuscript with ideas for five other books in a mm -hmm. series, you know, and I had an idea. Each one could take place, have a different Roman theme. You know, one would be about slavery and the eruption. One would be about the eruption of Vesuvius. One would be about the great fire of Rome. In fact, the two years of Titus's reign were packed with real sure. exciting events, and including the opening of the Colosseum. Right. Yes. Amazing stuff. Such a rich period. Yeah. Thank you, Flavians. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I put together, I, she sent in the whole first draft with idea for five more, and um, amazingly, within a few months, um, we had a five, a six book deal with Ryan wow. children's books. Um, and so again, I, it was just, um, my ignorance of 
not thinking this is going to be hard, thinking I could do this and, <laughs> and riding the J.K. Rowling wave of success. Now, Jeff, it's time for the ads, but we don't have a, a funny segue. Not we, that any of them were funny. We don't. Um, I mean, this is kind of a special episode. We okay. Have a, we have a special guest, so I think that's okay. How about this? Okay. Speaking of no segue, yeah. it's time for the ads. Well done. This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by... Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, they've been in business for 53 years, as long as I have been on this planet. They have their uh, their offices in Indianapolis and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, we love these guys. They've been with us since the beginning. They took a chance on this little uh, yes. podcast of ours, and they stuck with us. And um, they it's not just that, but they, they produce great stuff. They do. Say a little bit about Hackett, Dave. What how, do you about, like? how about a limerick? Oh, no, really? Okay, you, yes, you, no, you no. You don't want a limerick? No, I mean, really, Dave, you have one? <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, for Plato and Livy and Sallust, don't leave all your books in the ballast, but sail straight ahead to hack it, we said, else your literary tastes will grow calloused. Nicely done. I believe you wrote that. I did. Fantastic. You, when you say nicely done, yes. what you mean is yeah. sallust, ballast, calloused. Yes. That, I mean, I've never, I don't think probably anybody in the history of, of humanity the has, world. <laughs> have, has rhymed those words together. That's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. I like Hackett mm -hmm. that uh, they support this podcast. They are in favor of not canceling, but promoting the classics. They have fantastic books at a reasonable price, yes. uh, attractive, accurate translations, sometimes multiple translations for a given author, say uh, the Ovid Metamorphoses, there's the Stanley Lombardo, and there is also the Ambrose edition. Yep. We love their stuff. We do. So, listeners, uh, their immense catalog is available to you at uh, very reasonable prices. Go check it out, hackitpublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com. Find the books that you want and type in, uh, what coupon code do we need for them? A-N, yes. you ready? Yeah. 2024. That's right. It's a brand new year. Brand it's new a brand code. new chance to buy books. Brand new code, so, A-N-2024. So, uh, drop that in um, where into the box that requests it, and you will get 20% uh, off your order and free shipping. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by the good folks, uh, Mark Helweg and company at Ratio Coffee. Jeff, did you have any coffee this morning? I did, and I, I brewed it up with my Ratio 8 machine. I did. How about okay. yourself? Well, I thought about uh, using my Dac and Blecker. Yeah. That yeah. was a hard pass. <laughs> right, right. Senior coffee. Yeah. No. Hard pass. Uh, I thought about going down to Barstux. <laughs> no, no. No. The Bean and Bagelized Barnery. No, did you go down there? Yes. You did? But they weren't serving any good coffee, so oh, I came back. Sounds good. Okay. I thought about uh, picking up something from the manufacturer of Scorch Pads. <laughs> oh, you did? Does it? You know who they are. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. Fire Down Below. Fire Down Below. Yeah, yeah. That was a hard pass. <laughs> yeah. Finally, I thought maybe I should use a Gurik machine. Oh, all right, right. They have those little, uh, what are they called? The, the single serve marsupods. Oh, the marsupods. They got yeah. the marsupods. There's, I, th I think their slogan is, uh, there's a little joey of coffee in every sip. <laughs> right. So you went with that. I no, no, no. No, I stuck with the ratio eight. Of course you did. It's got uh, a nice oyster shell color. I've got the hulking flag on into which my coffee is um, easily decanted mm -hmm. up through the metallic veins, down through the Fibonacci head without a hint of a brackish tang. There you go. That's right. Yeah, same thing. I mine has the the stain, uh, stainless steel accents. Yes. That hulking flag in which keeps the coffee warm for hours. You don't need that scorch pad. No. no fire down below. Forget That's it. That's right. Right. It keeps everything kind of natural and fresh. Can't say enough about it. So Dave, if our listeners are interested in one of these awesome machines, what should they do? 
Well, they should go to RatioCoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O Coffee.com, based out in Portland, Oregon. All the machines are uh, handmade with the highest quality materials. They can look at the Ratio 8. That's the flagship model, the Mm -hmm. Millennium Falcon. They can look at the Ratio 6, which is a a little more uh, convenient price point. Mm -hmm. Or they can wait until the Ratio 4 comes out, which is not going to be too long. Yeah, that's that's, uh, imminent, as I understand. It's imminent. That's correct. And this is going to be a fantastic machine. And uh, we understand, listener, that you like coffee and you want to participate in the, the literary and caffeinated lifestyle. But these machines, you know, they're not cheap. They're an investment. The Ratio 4 is going to thread that needle, I think. Yeah. So uh, go to the website, check it out, see what you like, and enter this coupon code, Jeff. A-N-C-O-5-K. What does the K stand for? That stands for coffee <laughs> in a kind of a whimsical kind of way uh, no. perhaps yes yeah uh, it's hard what it's I, tough kong it, kong like as in king yeah okay. it's, it's the king of coffee makers <laughs> okay i like that better that works yeah yep. and jeff we should probably also say a couple things about uh, where the listener can find caroline's excellent books indeed where and where would that be? well the roman mysteries series uh that would be the thieves of ostia and the Assassins of Rome and so forth. These are published by Orion Books. So if you go to romanmysteries.com, I think that's where you can find uh, Caroline's books. And we have a signed copy of one of these that we're going to give away to one of our listeners as soon as we figure out the special social media for it. Excellent. Uh, Mishka's going to help us out, but we have a signed copy of one of Caroline's books to give to one of our lucky listeners. Excellent. Very, very good. And what about the other books, Jeff? The uh, the Night Raid and the one that you especially like? The uh, the Queen of the Silver Arrow? Yes. yes. Um, where, where do those come from? So these are published by Barrington Stoke, okay. which frankly sounds a little made up, but it's <laughs> probably some British publisher. You know, they, they break every day at uh, four for high tea, yes. something like that. Yeah, yeah, it sounds but like But anyway, that. Barrington Stoke, I assume it's available from that uh, river-based book emporium. You can find all of these there. Yes, yeah. uh, Caroline Lawrence's wonderful books. And so because she has been so generous in uh, being our guest today, we want to encourage the listener to go check them out. They are excellent stories. All right, Jeff. So what yeah. else, as we get back into it, uh, yeah. would you like to ask Caroline? So, so Caroline, you have this really interesting identity as, you know, an, a kind of an American identity and a, a British identity. And one of the things I was, I was curious about is as you have talked to uh, American readers, British readers, audiences on, on both sides, do you recognize kind of a noticeable difference in how they kind of, um, uh, respond to this, re- respond to the material? In my sense is, is that, you know, the British Isles has always struck me as much more of kind of a a myth-soaked place. I mean, you have, you know, you talk about, you know, finding a Mithraeum in the basement of Bloomberg's, you know, the, the Roman stuff is is, is right there. Uh, and America, of course, doesn't have that kind of, um, you know, classical antiquity kind of baked into the pie. And I'm just wondering if you've noticed that that kind of difference kind of coming out in how kids or readers, audiences have responded to to your stories. It's, I think it's not so much the myth of the place we live in, because I think everybody loves the Greek myths. I think mm-hmm. kids just adore, everybody adores the Greek myths, or Native American mythology, or Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. Right. Kids, kids love that stuff, like they love dinosaurs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, but what I've, the one reason I'm glad I live in England is I think, I don't want to upset anyone in America, but I think kids are just so much better readers here. Mm-hmm. The education 
is uh is just amazing you know i they read they read my books in third grade here hmm. do you think it's because the weather there is so poor they're staying that's, inside and yes, reading that's exactly why it's so <laughs> rotten you don't want to go out and skate no just curl up with a book stay, curl up with a book that's exactly right and i remember thinking gosh i couldn't do this in california you know no be out there walking around but it's raining and it's cold. I'm going to open my book of Greek mythology or my <laughs> Cicero or my Cicero right. or my Apuleius, whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's referencing you there, Jeff. Apuleius. You know, I, I, always, yeah. I, I love a good Apuleius shout out. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, it seldom happens that one of our um, guests is a fan of what we're doing. That's, <laughs> that's so kind. Yeah. We're, we're so appreciative, Caroline. Well, like yeah. you, I'm in, in I call myself an evangelist for the classics. Hmm. I want people to fall in love. Yes. You could live a hundred lifetimes and never exhaust the classical world. Right. Agreed. It's yeah. so rich. And I keep, you know, I've been studying it almost all my life and I keep coming across authors. Who's Lactantius? I've never heard of him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he's the yeah. Christian Cicero. Oh my God. That's right. right. Yep. Right. His milky and smooth for style. Few, uh, for a few years, I was into Galen, you know, mm-hmm. Greek-speaking um, doctor in the Roman world. Oh my gosh, he's like an ancient Sherlock Holmes. He could yes. walk into the sick room yes. and figure out what was wrong by clues, right? You know, and by what the slave was taking out in the chamber pot and stuff right. like that, <laughs> and the dregs in a cup on the window. Um, yeah. So, so the ancient, the ancient doctor, your character Mordecai in Thieves of Ostia. I, I hear that uh, by the end of the story, he's headed off to the, the Bay of Neapolis. So I hope he appears in subsequent stories. Oh, but yeah. I, th- I thought the fact that uh, you presented him first as a Jew and then as a uh, Christianized Jew, that was very clever. And I didn't see it coming, frankly. <laughs> How well, did you I'm, make that decision, if I may ask? Um, well, I'm half Jewish. Um, okay. I, grew, I grew up as an atheist. And um, when I... A few years after I left Cambridge, I had a kind of amazing conversion experience at a dinner mm. party and um, kind of became a born-again Christian. And I think the thing that hit me the most um, was apart from feeling the morning after I said the prayer, Sure. Everything seemed fresh and clean and bright, like when you're a kid and you run outside on a Sunday morning and the yeah. sparkling on the ground. The other thing that really struck me was I opened my Bible. I'd tried to read it before, and it was alive. Mm-hmm. It alive. And I suddenly realized this is actually my story. I'm half Jewish. Mm-hmm. So um, I started studying biblical Hebrew, and I got the same experiences with Greek and Latin. It opened mm-hmm. the world to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, well, this period where, when Vesuvius erupts is just, um, 40 years roughly after the crucifixion and mm-hmm. very first Christians are running around the world. And yep. you know, Paul's, Paul was in Italy, maybe in 62 AD and my yep, right. is 15 years later and stuff. So I thought, this is great. I can kind of, what did the very first generations of Christianity looked like when it was still mainly Jewish. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was just another sect of Judaism at that point, like the Essenes or the Sadducees. Sure, right. 
That was nicely done in the book. It was it was very um, artful. I have to say, it was not heavy handed. Um, I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's it's again a hard a hard line to a hard a tightrope. You know, you don't want to be correct, crazy, but you want to show what it might have been like. So yeah. yes, I thought you did that very well because I've read um, accounts that are uh, I guess ham fisted. Um, there is a place for proselytization. Um, I don't think a novel is the best place for that. Um, and I, I don't think that that's how uh, the story was told. I think of, um, uh, this is kind of heavy literary reference. I'm not trying to show off, but um, I won't be to you. But I mean, for our listeners, in the Brothers Karamazov, there's a scene where uh, Alyosha, one of the brothers, um, reads from a portion in John. And uh, he has a kind of epiphany. And it's a revelation moment in his life. And I remember how powerfully impactful that was when I first read it. Um, so there are definitely ways to do it well. And I would say on a, a smaller scale than Dostoevsky, no offense, uh, you did it <laughs> really well in Thieves of Ostia. And you know what's really hard, David, is writing it when you can use an allegory like C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. You know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's such a powerful book. But um, one of the books I want to write that I'm really struggling with is um is what was jesus like as a teenager mm -hmm. and it's just a minefield it's very sure hard. right and i've been studying you know i love i'm it's right up my it's right in my period um i've been studying you know ancient israel again the archaeology of the period right. nazareth was a short walk from sephora this very hellenistic town on a hill um, Joseph was probably not a carpenter, but a builder. The word is tecton. In his right. right. Um, and so I imagine them going up and working in Sephora every right. day, where there might have been sophists walking around talking about Neoplatonists and people sure. like that. And right. Jesus probably spoke not a, not just Aramaic, but obviously Greek and Hebrew. So mm -hmm. And possibly just, Latin. And possibly Latin. And I want to... I'm trying to figure out how to tell that story without, again, being bashing people on the head. You know? Sure. Well, that, that's really interesting. And be, uh, I'm sure as you know, is that um, I think this is one of the places where a, a fairly typical hero's journey doesn't help you because it's so much, so many hero's journeys follow the pattern of you get a, maybe a handful of stories as the, of the hero as a young kid that shows, you know, potential. And then you kind of get this zip fast forward. Oh, the hero's 30. And now it's going to walk the the journey, right? So I mean, that's that's the that's the the story of Christ. I mean, the story of uh, you know the Buddha kind of follows that same kind of pattern, but it also kind of leaves this 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 blank page waiting to be written, right? Mm -hmm. We have that one story of, of Jesus as um, twelve, about twelve years in old. the in yeah. the temple, Luke two, and then and then Luke tells us he's he's thirty and he starts his. Uh, his, his 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 mission path towards his death and resurrection. Of yeah. course, this has been done before poorly in the so-called apocryphal gospels. There's a oh, lot right. of a lot of stuff between age twelve and thirty. Yeah, but those, of course, were left out of the canon. Yeah. But, oh, I mean, you look up stories about later stories about Jesus' childhood. He's like making birds out of mud. And yes, yes, yeah, correct. Right. And then the worst thing is Hokey. he's like he's like he's being like Elijah and he's striking down people and killing right. people left, right, yep. right, yeah, and they're bullying him. No uh, ring of authenticity. Right. Although Jesus's life does follow the hero's journey, I had this revelation that his revel his big revelation is the moment he comes up out of the Jordan after being baptized by John. Mm -hmm. and the voice says, "This is my son in whom I am well pleased." 
And he then crosses the threshold. Where does he go? He goes back to his hometown, does he not? He goes to no. Capernaum. Uh, he's well, come up out of the Jordan. Oh, he goes out into the wilderness, of course. He goes to be into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. tested. tested. Right. For 40 days and 40 nights. Mm -hmm. And that's when I think it suddenly hit him. Oh, my gosh, I've been reading about this Messiah character. That's me. Mm. And just imagine if you put all the hints in the Old Testament, all those prophetic statements, and you know the suffering you're going to have to go through. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That's an amazing moment. And then mm. he's got, he, he, there's a visit to death. There's a resurrection, you know. It's, it's got all the steps. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. but again, it's going to be tricky to do because I don't want to do that, but I want to do when he's younger. And one thing I think the film Ben Hur did brilliantly um, was it never shows his face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it always leaves it to your imagination. And that's so much more powerful. So mm -hmm. one thing I point with is that my time traveler goes back to meet kid Jesus, right? Mm. He never actually meets him, but he meets people who've been influenced by him. Right. Right. But it's again, it's it's how do you tread that line? I wrote a whole first draft, and my agent said nope, and I agreed. I said nope, you're right. <laughs> so it's not easy. It's getting yeah. harder, harder. Yeah. So as your as your books grew in in popularity and in readership, you got some additional opportunities. Uh, two of them were adapted for the BBC. Is that right? Well, actually, what happened was my first series was the most popular, and that okay they adapted um, they adapted. Um, 10 of the books, I think, out of 17 in all mm -hmm. um, as, as a TV series. Um, but for a variety of reasons, it didn't really take off. Mm. Um, but so, so my big success was with my first series, The Roman Mysteries. And mm -hmm. since then, I've never sold as well, but I've had fun. I've made my, my living as a writer, at least yes. in the ancient world. And, and then my last three, um, projects have all been on commission. They've been nonfiction. One was a retelling of Aesop's fables, which I had fun because I went back to mm -hmm. the Greek of Aesop's fables is uh, Koine. It's easy Greek. And then another one I've been asked to write a book about London for kids. So, mm. oh, yeah, that's great. And my latest project, I'd love to pick your brains on this. It's someone who read my books growing up is now a commissioning editor and asked me to write a book about the Greek gods. Huh. Like no, one, no one's ever done that before, right? <laughs> uh, well, there's always more room. I right? guess she asked the, me to the write book. The stories have to be retold. So, and she wants it for adults rather than kids, hmm. and especially for adults whose kids probably know a lot more about the Greek. Yes, than they do because um, they've all read Rick Riordan, among, yeah, among others. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And now there's uh, there's a kind of new wave of retelling of the feminine, you know, Circe and. Mm -hmm. um, and Natalie Haynes's books um, about yes. about Medusa as a kind of um, you know kind of almost feminist um, a re a new take. So mm -hmm. I'm writing a book about the Greek gods, and I've got to do it as a kind of the kind of bouillon cubes of Greek gods, it, boiling them down to their essentials, just huh. a kind of a primer. So I wondered who was your each of you? Who's your favorite Greek mm. god or goddess? Mm. Jeff, uh, my my favorite. I, I say this to uh, to every uh, myth class. So when uh, we'll spend a specific class period talking about specific gods, 
I always say to them, you might think that the natural place to start with Cognitive Critical is Zeus, but I always start with Athena. Hmm. Um, Athena's always been my favorite, uh, just because of the um, the links between the goddess and Athens itself, and the archaeology, and uh, you know, the, the 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 wealth of 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 you know, Western civilization that came out of Athens, and a lot of it has to do with kind of the the radically different way that the ancient Athenians uh, viewed their relationship to Athena than um, how so many of the other Greeks saw their relationships to um, to to other gods, and so I I found her endlessly fascinating. Hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to cheat and and mention two if I can. Oh, okay. The, the first one is probably, I'm getting a look from Jeff. <laughs> the first one is probably obvious and that's Apollo. Um, I really like Apollo primarily because of the statue in the um, Temple of Zeus at Olympia, that pediment where he's in the battle against the centaurs, the lapis and the centaurs and Apollo comes down and he has this entirely dispassionate look on his face. Exactly. That's the one where he's doing exactly. That. And he's reaching over with his right arm, holding at bay the forces of savagery and rapine and um, barbarism. And yet there's no emotion on his face. Well, it's, and, like, it's like Mark, Michael Corleone lighting the guy's cigarette. I guess it's very <laughs> similar to that. Yes. And now I know that, uh, that Apollo has his uh, Dionysian side, you know, chasing Daphne and doing other horrible things. But he's the god of music. And I think there's something really fascinating about that. And then to cheat, the second one yeah. is a very minor character from Ovid, uh, the character of Vertumnus. Um, who is the gentleman that guards the the garden, and he is the suitor of Pomona, uh, who is one of the nymphs of the countryside. And um, Ovid turns him into like a woodland Cicero, and mm. he, he tries to get inside the garden and pitch woo to Pomona, and he's arguing, you know, about how how wonderful uh, in the disguise of an old woman, how wonderful Vertumnus is, and then he takes off. His mask. He's his own wingman. There you go. <laughs> exactly. I think that's a fascinating character, mostly because of Ovid's uh, brilliance. It yeah. just it really wins the day. Ovid, I have a, I have a, I'm doing little boxes in this book, and I have a mm -hmm. box of Greek mythology versus Ovidian mythology. He, yes. he his own myths, doesn't he? I mean, yes, he yes. does. Some of our best known myths are from him. The way that. Um, Psyche and, and Cupid is for Eros, mm -hmm. is from Apuleius alone. Right. He's our only source, isn't he, for that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Although he does appear that they do appear on on vases. Does Vertumnus? What does he look like, David? Well, he's a woodland nymph. I'm um, sorry, he's a woodland fawn. Excuse me. And he's got uh, the goat legs and everything. Uh, Little horns, maybe. Yes, he does. Although that's not how he's presented in Ovid. But in some of the artistic representations, of course, he is the inspiration for C.S. Lewis's Mr. Tuminus in the first book of the um, Narnia Chronicles, where yeah, he's, complete, he's completely desexualized, even though in, in Ovid, he's a very libidinous character. Of course, Lewis doesn't present him that way in a children's story. Um, so that's fascinating. Yeah, I actually have. I actually have a line in my manuscript. I'm just looking at that about how he came up with the idea. Um, oh yeah, it's the author C.S. Lewis once said the idea for the book came to him following a mental picture he had of a fawn in the snow with umbrella and parcels. <laughs> <laughs> He's a, a witty man, Lewis, absolutely. Fantastic. So I wanted to read, uh, read you a recent review, Caroline. This is so recent, it was done within the last two hours. This is a fresh very fresh review from a child's perspective of your book, The Night Raid. 
And uh, this has never before been published because my daughter wrote it this morning. She, <laughs> she read the book in about 25 minutes and she said, uh, dad, are you going to read this one? I said, I'm, I'm out of time. Can you just read it for me? And can you just give me a review? And so here's what she says. The Night Raid is a very interesting book. It starts very dramatically. A young boy named Rye is trying to pull a sword from his father's grip, his dead father's grip. He finds another boy who uh, helps him and his mother escape the burning city. They try to make a life in New Troy. Then Rye and the boy who helped him have to go on a night raid to bring help to their besieged people. In the end, they are immortalized by Virgil in his poetry. Wow, nice review. Nice I review. think it's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, she, there's nothing snarky. Reviewers can sometimes be uh, snarky. They can say things like, uh, this is the book no one should have written or, you know, words to that effect. But uh, she liked it very much. Thank you. That's really encouraging. I wanted yeah. to do, um, I kind of wanted to do about 10 years ago, a retelling of the Aeneid from, for kids. Mm -hmm. um, and... And my publisher said, no, nobody's reading Bronze Age books now. And then after that came all these Bronze Age books. But right. <laughs> um, and I thought, so because she shot that idea down, I thought, well, I'll do stand two standalone books from the Aeneid where they die at the end. So it's got to be a standalone book. And one of them was of Nisus and Urialis, because mm. it's for dyslexic kids. Mm. And the other one was the story of Camilla. So they all die at the end. So those are my two mm. set standalone tributes to Right. That was fun because all the materials in Virgil, it's in the Aeneid, and I just now have to retell it in kind of order in a way. Mm, right. Heroes right. journey and everything. Yeah, and, and speaking of Camilla, I mean, we have to keep an eye on the clock here a little bit. We want to be respectful of your time. Although I have the feeling that the three of us could talk together for about another 10 hours, frankly. Indeed. Um, Jeff and I both had the chance to read uh, Queen of the Silver Arrow, mm -hmm. and so we'd like to talk about that a little bit. Uh, Jeff, you want to start with that? Yeah, I'm just, um, I just I'm just asking. I'd love to ask what drew you to um, Camilla. I mean, that I in our own series on the podcast um, that we did on the Aeneid, uh, I found revisiting Camilla particularly fascinating. And I love the idea that you know, there's some mystery about whether you know, she was a um, an invention of Virgil himself. Or uh, that she had some kind of you know preexistence in Roman mythology, but that I mean, one of the many things that makes her so unique. But I just wonder what personally kind of drew you to the character of Camilla. Well, um, I mean, she's great. First of all, she she grows up in the woods as a little with a little mini bow and arrow and little mini tiger skin. <laughs> yeah, she's like a little mini Diana, goddess of the hunt, really, um, or a mini Amazon. So what's not to like? The reason I chose Camilla is she dies. So it's a standalone. There's a beginning and an end. The reason I chose Nisus and Muriales is they die. And at the beginning, I wrote the Night Raid first. And I started with, um, I think it's Nisus narrating a bit like Sunset Boulevard. He's dead, but he's narrating the story, right? Mm. So it's the opening. They killed me, you know? Right. And... Um, they say when a sword punches you, it feels like a fist punch. Well, it doesn't. It feels like a cold bronze metal popping your organs and scraping your ribs, you know. Ah. Uh, so, but I thought with Camilla, I can't do, I don't want to do it first person, her telling the story. So I decided she mentions her friend Aka, her best mm -hmm. friend Aka, maybe twice. Virgil mentions her maybe twice. 
So I thought I'll do it from her point of view, and she tells yeah. the story of Camilla. So, and again, that's it's like it's like a code or a puzzle. You've got your story structure. You've got to figure out whose point of view it'll be, what the main beats will be, what the main conflict, the battle will be, what the visit to death will be, what the revelation will be at the end. Yeah. So it was just fascinating to go through the Aeneid and comb it and get all the details. Um, I think Camilla's in books um, 7 and 11. So that's mm-hmm. easy to remember, 7 11, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. convenient. Yeah, convenient for it. Um, and Muriel is her book nine. So That's right. This is, this is the back end of the Aeneid that very few people read. You know, they exactly. Don't read. So um, again, I did it to, I hoped to get people interested. Oh, I'm going to read those books of the Aeneid and find out more. Um, and, and I loved it. I, it has one, one of my favorite things is, I think we all love the transformation scene where they take the grubby girl, you know, who's yes. all, Dirty and her hair is tangled and or her she's teeth even right teeth, yeah and they beautify the beauty the beauty montage where they right people, you know you, you get it in um, Miss Congeniality you get yeah, it of in, course Jeff when are we going to get the beauty treatment is I think it, it, we're, it's we're, it's too late for us it's David. too late yes. oh, <laughs> if you take off your glasses I'll say wow you guys are handsome oh that's right yeah, that <laughs> <laughs> just taking off the glasses. So oh, I had you're to, funny. The beauty treatment was great. That was so fun writing that scene where they teach her table manners and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So yeah. I had a huge amount of fun writing that. Yeah. I love the detail. I mean, one of my that the scene of of you know Camilla's father throwing her across the river attached to a spear is, is such a, a, a vivid thing. I love the the detail that you you brought out. Is that when her father gets to the other side, uh, little Camilla is giggling because yeah. she thought it was a game. Right, it looked like a little larva in a in a. In cork, a, oh, cork, uh, cork cocoon, yes, yeah. cork cocoon. I just, I thought that was fantastic. Nice but, touch. but you know, you know, any other baby would be screaming of terror, but Camilla, this yeah. is all. Oh, this is where it's at. Like, you know, throw it again, Dad. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's, that was that was fantastic. Yeah. Yep. So as you um as you became very successful, you were elected, I think, to the presidentship of the um the classical league there in Great Britain. Is that right? Uh, following well, on. They, they do ahead. a different one every year and they have a scholar one year and a non-scholar the next. Okay. So it's just, it was just a kind of a little, a little honorific, which I'm very I see. So that now, did nice. this give you daily access to the queen or anything like that? Or was it? Yes, uh, I went and had tea with her every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never met the queen. I hmm. never well, hey, um, I think uh, we want to be considerate of your time. And um, so I, I want to thank you so much, Karen, for, for joining us. Uh, we would love to have you on again uh, in the future to talk about um, you know, new projects uh, down, down the pike. This has been this has been just a blast. Yes, absolutely. I have, I have so much ad from admiration for both of you. I would love to do to be if you ever want to do a series on the Greek gods and goddesses, I will be your third oh. wheel of your tricycle. Oh, that would be wonderful. Fantastic. I would love yeah. to do that and just spend more time with you. And as you said, I could spend more than 10 hours. Oh, thank you. Hours. Yeah. I do have one question about your background. And by that, I mean your actual background. There's a pillow there in the back, which looks to be the eye of the Cyclops or something. Oh, oh now, now I it's see an ap- It's an apotropaic. That's my futon. It's apotropaic. Oh. Oh yes, yeah. scaring us away. You can see there's a little face there, yeah. The yeah, I like that with the nose. Oh, yes, 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 yes. See, the mask is apotropaic. I see it? that too. And I might even have a Mormalukion. That's a oh, Mormalukion. Oh, yes, very frightening. 
You know, the masks you get all over ancient Greece and Rome, you find yes. masks. They're not actors' masks. Yeah, they are actors' masks, but right. you find them on baby beakers, oil lamps, frescoes, revolving um, things called oscillaria. Right. They're mm. to keep away evil. They reflect back the evil eye. And when I was translating Aesop's fables, I found the word is a mormalukion. Mm-hmm. Mormo is a kind of female demon, and lukos is wolf. And yes. they're like a bogeyman. And the right. word is a mormalukion. And once you see mm. them everywhere, it's Medusa's oh. face. It's the Gorgonian and everything. Right. It strikes me right now for the first time that they are ancient emojis. <laughs> right? Yeah. Ancient emojis for get back, demon. Yes. yes. <laughs> Stick it wherever you in in, you know, the, the thumb or the crying face or the laughing face. So anyway. Right. Well, yeah, it, uh, Carolyn, if you want if you want to come on um and 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 spend five hours uh, talking about uh, liminal spaces. And uh, I, I I'm all so for it. <laughs> I might things. have to take a break myself through part of that. Maybe <laughs> take a nap or something. Crossing the threshold. It's yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. So thank you so much, Caroline. We are just thrilled you could join us. Your generosity and kindness. Um, very grateful. Well, I'm really looking forward it. to doing uh, Latin per diem every day now. <laughs> I will hear your dulcet, and I love your podcast. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. And so oh, thank you so much. The editor who commissioned that book, she's now a fan. So we're hoping oh, to oh, thank you. Excellent. the fan base in, in, in London and England. I have to say you gave us um, one of the nicest compliments ever, which was something along the lines of, I like your podcast, even the terrible or despite the terrible puns. That <laughs> That was... That was delightful. That that warmed the, the cockles of my heart. Dad, so. The dad puns are great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, take care, Caroline. Bye bye. Thanks again. Thank you for bye. having me on. Bye bye. Of course. Bye bye. All right, Jeff. We we got to get out of here, don't we? We do because uh, what's that sound? Oh, I mean, yeah. That there's the there's a banging on the door. There's fists and hammering and the the kicking of panels and so forth. I think that's the. Uh, the National Union to Prevent Amateur Podcasting. Wait, NUPAP is on? NUPAP is here. NUPAP is here? An angry mob, and they didn't even call ahead. <laughs> no. They're trying to throw us out of the vomitorium. Oh, so uh, okay. if we value life and limb, we better wrap this up. We better wrap this quickly. Yes. Because we don't want to run afoul of NUPAP. Indeed. No. Uh, they have a long reach. They do. They do. <laughs> so, Dave, before we get out of yes. here, um, tell us something about the Moss Method and LPSI, would you? Sure. Yeah. So, Moss Method for Greek is a program I've developed based on a 19th century uh, public domain textbook by Charles Melville Moss. The approach is simple. Greek does not have to be complicated. Yes, you need to learn forms, but you don't have to learn them all at once and then practice on a couple stale sentences. You can learn them naturally a little bit at a time as you are reading engaging stories. Things from Xenophon, Herodotus, Lucian, Aesop, um, lots of great stories. Yeah. And so I put this program together. Go to mossmethod.com. It's divided into four modules. The cost for entry, I think, is relatively low. The first module includes 40 video lessons, six quizzes, two exams, lots of great, rich, deep instruction uh, delivered in a video format, self-paced, expert, and accessible. And it's got your favorite feature. What, the the office hours, the right? The office hours, yes. that's right. Once a week, typically every Friday, with you know an occasional interruption, I meet with students from all over the world, and we study Greek together. You can ask me any questions you have about the New Testament, about a classical author, some patristic author. It's a great way to engage with a, a community of like-minded learners and advance your Greek. Sounds great. And then how about LPSI? Yeah, so this is the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, the famous series by Hans Orberg, sold by Hackett. 
and uh, I've developed uh, a similar kind of video delivery course where I am teaching to four live students and I record this and then you can watch and follow along. So you get all the benefits of being in the classroom without the inconveniences and disadvantages. And those would be sometimes it's just too much pressure. You don't want to be on the spot. Maybe it doesn't fit your schedule. You can purchase this course and learn along with us as I detail all the fine points of Latin grammar and also teach some spoken Latin. So go to latinperdm.com slash LLPSI. Check out my more than 2,000 free videos and uh, see if you'd like to sign up for this course. It sounds great. So listeners, if you want to follow uh, Ms. Lawrence's lead and make this part of a New Year's resolution of learning Greek and Latin or brushing up on your Greek and Latin, this is a great way to do it. You're very generous, Jeff. Thank you. So we got some people to thank. Yes, we do. As always, our intrepid engineer, Mishka, uh, putting this together uh, so tightly and at lightning speed. Yes, going to uh, make it sound great. Yes, and how about those uh, How about those musicians? Yeah. Yeah. Scott Vinzen, Ken Tamplin. That uh, widdly-diddly guitar screaming, blazing arpeggios and the nice bumper music with the uh, the bass and the keyboards going together. Right. And and the, I think the listener should be reminded, this doesn't just fall out of the ether. You have these connections. You, you are connected, my oh, friend. Oh, well, that's very to, kind um, of you. you uh, to these, these high rollers. Man. Yeah, well, the Lord has blessed me with some really nice friendships. Yep. Generous people who uh, share their talent with me. Uh, all undeserving, I got to say. Excellent. Hey. Listeners, if you want to shout out, if you got an idea for an episode, you got a question, you got a comment, you have a complaint, don't hesitate to contact us. Wait a minute, really? Well, I mean, we're, we're soliciting complaints. We don't I, want them to even hesitate. Well, I mean, maybe that with the complaints, if you have a complaint, you know, sleep on it. How about they count to three or three thousand before they send us a complaint? Fair enough. Okay, right. So, but they can do this by writing to us. Um, you can write to me at uh, Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget or, the V. Or they can write to Dave. Or you can write to Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. <laughs> <laughs> or to me, same thing. Yes. You know the routine. You can get a Kwai No Kent Do Kent t-shirt at our website. You can lurch with merch. You can get a hat, etc. So, yes, don't hesitate to check us out. Um, and Dave, next week, what do we got going on? We got some thundering and rumbling <laughs> up above. I don't know what's Those guys happening. Those from Newpap. Yeah, the Newpap. They're really <laughs> eager to get in here. Uh, next week, I, I'm not sure. Shall we return to Maru? Yes, I think uh, we, we have some. Uh, we definitely have some unfinished business there. That's correct. Yep. And a lot of other things lined up. We uh, we had teased previously a seasonal a seasonal Christmas themed. Um, episode uh, with respect to Herod the Great. Yeah. We're going to put that on hold. Yes. Um, another Christmas will likely hold, uh, roll around and we'll deal with it then. Sounds good. And Dave, you have our gustatory parting shot. Yes. This comes from one of my favorite authors, although there are some who like to uh, throw shade against this fellow. <laughs> I'm speaking of the great Charles Dickens. You know why I like him? Why do you like him? Uh, he's funny and he can turn a phrase. Okay. One reason people dislike him, he was paid by the word when oh. his uh, stories were serialized. So he doesn't really know when to stop a sentence. <laughs> he was milking it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I think that's true. But this is what Charles Dickens says. We have had for breakfast toasts, cakes, a Yorkshire pie, a piece of beef about the size and much the shape of my portmanteau, tea, coffee, ham, and eggs. That's a serious breakfast. He's packing it in. Thanks, Thanks Charles. Thanks for listening. 